This is the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and this is episode number 17, The Barrier of the Skin, with guest Professor Michael J. Spivey. And you'll hear me tell Professor Spivey early on in the conversation that uh, all of the characters on Rocky and Bullwinkle had the middle name Jay, named after the showrunner Jay Ward. Uh, that's not right. It's only Rocky and Bullwinkle themselves that were Rocket J. Squirrel and Bullwinkle J. Moose. But who is this Michael J. Spivey? Well, he's a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, Merced. He earned his BA in psychology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and his PhD in brain and cognitive sciences at the University of Rochester. After 12 years as a psychology professor at Cornell University, Michael moved to UC Merced to help build their Department of Cognitive and Information Sciences. He has published over 100 journal articles and book chapters on the embodiment of cognition and interactions between language, vision, memory, syntax, semantics, and motor movement. His research uses eye tracking, computer mouse tracking, and dynamical systems theory to explore how brain, body, and environment work together to make a mind what it is. His most recent book is called Who Are You? The Science of Connectedness from MIT Press. Reading from the MIT Press description of the book, Who Are You? Are you just a brain? A brain in a body? All the things you have done and all the friends you have made? Many of us assume that who we really are is something deep inside us, an inner sanctuary that contains our true selves. In Who You Are, Michael Spivey argues that the opposite is true, that you are more than a brain, more than a brain and body, and more than all your assumptions about who you are. Rather than peeling layers away to reveal your inner you, Spivey traces who you are outward. You may already feel in your heart that something outside your body is actually part of you. A child, a place, a favorite book. Spivey confirms this intuition with scientific findings. All right, well, here's my conversation with Professor Michael J. Spivey. This is the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I'm joined by Professor Michael J. Spivey. Professor Spivey, welcome. Thank you very much. You know that every character in the Rocky and Bullwinkle show had the middle initial J? I did not know that, <laughs> but now I'm going to use it. Yes, Rocket J Squirrel, Bullwinkle J Moose. <laughs> yeah, it rings a bell now. Yeah. All righty. So uh, you are a cognitive scientist, among other things. Yes. I've been talking to a lot of your cohort or colleagues recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because I have a longstanding interest in the philosophy of mind and also in artificial intelligence. And for most of my life, it's like most of my life, it seems, has been an AI winter. And uh, suddenly it's, it's not only AI spring, but things are just going crazy now. Things are moving yeah. really quickly. But your book, which we're going to talk about at length, is not explicitly about artificial intelligence, although the tie-in is, is pretty obvious to me. Yes, definitely. But um, your book, what's the full title of the book? Who You Are, The Science of Connectedness. Now, with many books, if you look at the table of contents, the title chapters tell a story, but few as clear as this one. <laughs> I'm just going to read the, the titles of your chapters. The prologue, who you might think you are now. Chapter one, let go of yourself. Two, from your soul to your prefrontal cortex. Three, from your frontal cortex to your whole brain. Four, from your brain to your whole body. Five, from your body to your environment. Six, from your environment to other humans. Seven, from other humans to all life. Eight, from all life to everything. Nine, who are you now? A very clear progression. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I think a concept we should get out of the way uh, up front is the concept of uh, externalism. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read just a very brief definition and let you expand on it as you see fit. Sounds good. So if you just if you just Google Stanford Dictionary Philosophy Externalism, you get this little snippet. Introduction, the philosophy of mind, external oh, in the philosophy of mind, externalism is the view that what is going on inside an individual's body does not always on its own fix what is going on inside that individual's mind. The mind, in this sense, simply denotes the totality of mental occurrences undergone by an individual at any given time. And then there's a much longer entry, which I will not read, but uh, yeah. I'll, I'll let you pick up on that. Interesting choice of words well, for them to use fix in that context. Um, 
for some people that might be a, a very technical term for others it might be a little vague term to fix something to have the not just the stuff inside your body fixing what your mental state is i might uh, go even a little farther than the word fix and say constitutes and so your mental state your mental activity your mental content is constituted according to externalism of more than just your brain and body but also some of the aspects of the relationship that your organism has with other things in the world it could be a tool you're holding in your hand it could be a person you're having a conversation with it could be a pet that you're cuddling with it could be a group of people that you've formed a society or culture with and those relationships that involve expanding beyond the envelope of your skin uh, is what constitutes part of your mind not just your brain and body and so externalism will, will take you out of your head literally are you familiar with the concept of an egregore? Yes, like an aggregate organism or aggregate thing. Sure. Yeah, or the personality of a group that emerges yes, yes. that is not contained in any one member of the group. Yeah. So, and you should be able to see me now. I do. It's awesome. Okay, great. The table of contents as I read them, you know, it tells a story, but it seems like it's more than just descriptive. It seems like there might be a prescription hidden in there somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think there's genuine benefits from changing your mind view to be less individualistic, less internalist, and to embrace some of your environment as part of who you are, as part of your mental content, as part of your identity. Uh, the benefits are that you will get along better with other people. Uh, the benefits are that you will recognize that the environment in, in terms of climate change and stuff, that that is part of you. We are part of the earth. We're not on the earth. We're part of the earth. And when you start thinking in terms of um, not an individual organism being an isolated identity that is surrounded by some context of an environment, but instead is a part of that environment, then the way that organism goes about its dealings with that environment will change, I think, in good ways. So the table of contents sort of tells a, a full story unto itself. But when one starts reading the book, uh, what I found is there's a lot of specific references to psychological research, which is what I found very interesting. Yeah. So yeah. you took a big intake there, so I'll, I'll just stop talking. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but... Um, no, go ahead. Uh, so, you know, there's been externalism as a, a view of philosophy of mind has come about in the philosophy circles. And so a lot of the arguments for it in the past have been motivated significantly by philosophical methods, theoretical arguments and thought experiments. And it, it's useful to sort of, you know, pump your intuitions out of the ground with an intuition pump and find out, oh, based on this little thought experiment, it makes me think differently about who I am, whether, whether it's just my brain that is who I am or my brain and body, my brain and body and my environment. But for some people anyway, especially scientists, thought experiments aren't really conclusive. Um, they just help get your own intuitions to work. And maybe we shouldn't always trust our own intuitions. Maybe we could do a little bit better by trusting some actual scientific results. And so that's what the vast majority of this book is walking through is chapters through chapter through chapter in that progression as you pointed out uh, looks at neuroscience findings psychological findings even anthropological findings real laboratory controlled experiments in a lot of cases that show your initial intuition about your mind maybe being just your frontal cortex where all your decision making happens and maybe the rest of the brain is just sensory apparatus that uh, it's like a, a information processing of a camera input in the back of your brain where your visual cortex is. Uh, the interactions between that frontal cortex and those other sensory areas of the brain are so rich that it's really hard to draw a line in your neuroscientific def definition and say, this part of the brain is me and the rest is just uh, a circuit board that's feeding me visual input and auditory input and stuff like that. And so as you start expanding that definition, you realize that... Um, there's no good place to really draw the line and say a discrete, uh, crisp definition between the physical matter that makes up me and the physical matter that makes up the context I'm in. Well, what is it about the prefrontal cortex that would even tempt somebody to say, oh, that's where I am, that's me? Excellent question. So uh, that shows up a lot in um, uh, chapter three, um, where uh, there's been work showing that when you are about to make um, a voluntary movement, and this is work started out by Benjamin LeBay in the 1980s, uh, he did EEG recordings on people, so surface electrodes on, on the scalp, and had them just, whenever they felt like it, lift their finger. 
He also had uh, an EMG recording the uh, muscle activity, the electrical fields generated by muscle activity in the fingers. So you could f figure out exactly the precise time when the finger lifts, they get to choose whenever they do it, which is an unusual kind of experiment. Normally you give someone a stimulus and they respond to it. This is whenever you feel like lifting your finger, do it. And I, what I want you to do is watch this clock with a little hand that's going around, tick, 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 and you figure out where it was on that clock at, at three o'clock or six o'clock that you felt like you had the decision. You made this freely willed decision to lift your finger. So keep track visually of what, where, what time it was when you had that intention. And we'll measure when your finger actually does lift, which is going to be a half second later usually. We're also recording all over your brain, and it's going to be the frontal cortex where you find it find out seeing a rise in electrical activity um, a few hundred milliseconds, not just before the finger lifts, but a few hundred milliseconds before you report being aware of your plan, your freely willed decision. And so your brain knows you're about to lift your finger a few hundred milliseconds before you lift your finger. Sorry, before you know you're, you're going to lift your finger. Um, so that was one of the first uh, powerful demonstrations that sort of your frontal cortex is doing some of your nearest and dearest freely willed decisions that you find out a few hundred milliseconds later that their brain has decided to do something. So I'm going to describe something in very non-scientific language, and you can tell me if there's any scientific basis to it, and if so, how it would cash out in proper scientific descriptions. There are different parts of our brain. One part decides and a different part explains why the decision was made. And the part that explains doesn't necessarily have any privileged access to the part that actually made the decision. I think that's excellent. And so, you know, it parts, the, the frontal cortex has a bunch of subregions, and some of them are very language related. And so that might be where you sort of can tell yourself, oh, I think I'm going to do this. And in a lot of cases, especially in the uh, experiment like that, you know you're supposed to lift your finger at some point whenever you feel like it. And so another part of frontal cortex that might not be that devoted to language processing is sort of building up some patterns of activation that finally reach a crescendo of a coherent population of neurons that are acting like a code for lift your finger now. And a couple hundred milliseconds later, your language cortices go, oh, that's what we're doing. Good. I thought so. And a few hundred milliseconds later, your finger actually lifts and you feel like you the part of your mind that can talk to itself feels like it was in charge of that and responsible for that. But it was actually a different part of the brain that was generating that process of a plan to lift the finger. And we have, well, maybe we don't have, I mean, maybe this is controversial, but I, I like to think that we have uh, mental representations of the world around us in our brain that we are not constantly updating. Basically, we build them based on information and what we know about the world, and then we don't update them until something glaringly obvious happens to make us update. And a, a funny example that I remember seeing many years ago, and I, I've looked for it on the web since, and I haven't been able to find it, but there's a, a clip where first you're given the instruction, count how many times the basketball is bounced. And there's a circle of basketball players on a basketball court, and they're bouncing a ball, and you pay very strict attention as you watch it, and you're counting, and I think it's like 11 or 12, and then the, uh, you know, the instructor comes back and says, okay, we're going to watch it again. This time, don't count the ball. Just watch the, you know, watch the whole scene, and as you're watching the scene, as these basketball players are bouncing a ball, a guy in a gorilla suit walks through. <laughs> you didn't see it the first time, and it's, you know, it's really amazing how much of the, the world that we think we see isn't really there. It's just basically our last uh, impression of it. And it's lessons like that, that chapter one in my book is really focused on. It describes uh, those kinds of change blindness experiments. Um, the one you describe is actually, it was done by uh, Daniel Simons, who was a grad student at Cornell when I was faculty there. Um, I got to be in lab meetings to hear him describe these experiments he was designing and planning. And he even did one with live interaction with people of um, someone walking around on Cornell campus with a map in their hands. And uh, they sort of randomly grab someone who's walking by and say, can you help me find this building? I'm, I think I'm lost. And so the person would turn and look at them and look at the map and sort of help them figure, okay, you're here now, start talking to them. And then suddenly kind of an Alan Funt style experiment with a candid camera, two people carrying a door horizontally would interrupt right between the two of them. And so the person holding the map would have to step back about a foot. The person helping them would step back about a foot and say, what the hell are they do? We're walking right between us with this door. And the person carrying the back of the door would trade places with the person holding the map. They were both male 
approximately similar height, similar hair color, but they didn't, you know, we're twins by any measure. Uh, so two different people have, have changed now. And so then now it's a different person holding the map and they look at that person and say, well, can you, sorry, that was weird, but can you help me find where I'm going? And 50% of the time, the people didn't notice a thing and went ahead and yeah, and helped them with the finding the, their way on the map. Another 50% people said, whoa, what was that? Hey, you're not the same guy. So these change blindness effects are powerful and it's a pretty common phenomena that they happen around 50% of the time. So there will be people who watch the gorilla uh, and catch the gorilla the first time. Sharp people, sharper than me, because <laughs> I missed it. Yeah. So what's what's the take home message from the uh, the change blindness example? Yeah, so it, I put it in the chapter one, let go of yourself, because the lesson there, along with similar lessons about uh, reconstructive memories, a lot of your memories are actually not accurate at all. A lot of your perceptions, like in change blindness, are not accurate at all. The, for me, anyway, the lesson there is that so much of what you think your intuitions are telling you about your perception of the world, your memory of the world, even your decision-making, your choices about the world are not really yours, are not really accurate. Um, the things that happened around you, you feel like you know what they are, but they you don't. Um, and one consequence of this for, for cognitive science anyway, is that um, there's been so much emphasis since the beginning of cognitive science in the 1950s and 60s, so much emphasis on representations in the mind being how you interpret the world. But it turns out a lot of how you interpret the world doesn't even require representations, doesn't even need them. So the fact that you missed that guy in a gorilla suit walking by didn't cause a problem for you performing your task of counting the basketball bounces and, and seeing that scene. You felt like you saw that whole scene for what you needed to see it for, and you did. Um, and so a lot of how you interact with the world may be less reliant on internal mental representations than we used to think. And a lot of it is on activity of you performing interactions with the world. The representations sometimes can just be out there in the world and waiting for you to still use them rather than you having to form some internal Cartesian theater that you have a homunculus in your mind looking at the screen and saying, oh, these are my internal representations of the world. We don't always need that. I have read that um, elderly people who have cognitive loss, you know, via whatever cause, often do better in their own homes than they do if they're put exactly. in an institution because the familiar environment basically provides structure for their daily activities and it reminds them what to do, when, and how. And if you take all of that away and they are just left with their internal representations, then their mind is, is materially and invisibly diminished. So that's concrete proof that their mind was more than their brain when they were at home. They were able to have good mental activity that helps them adapt and, and co cope through the day. Um, and you don't have to have, you know, mental deficits to experience this. I, you know, whenever I'm, I walk from one room of my house to another room to get something, every once in a while I get there and go, oh, shoot, what was I coming here for? And what do I do? I walk back to the previous room. And just the context of that previous room goes, oh, yeah, that right. helps me remember what it was that I wanted to get. Um, and people jig their environment on purpose all the time, right? People who put their keys on a hook by the front door, the car keys or house keys. That's a way to make sure you don't forget to take your keys with you when you leave the house, because perceptually your house is going to remind you to do that. And you don't have to have an internal memory reminder. The environment will do it for you. Now, there's one example of that that drives me batty. And I don't know that it's terribly relevant, but I'm just going to complain about it. I hate it when people set their clocks forward, thinking that that's going to prompt them to be on time for something. I used to do that as a kid. I would set my watch, my wristwatch, back when we wore them, uh, about five minutes fast to, to make sure I wouldn't be late to things. And of course, you know, it doesn't take long for my brain to just get accustomed to that and mentally subtract five minutes every time I look at my watch. <laughs> so it didn't actually help. So by the way, um, uh, I'm wearing a watch, not a wristwatch, but basically... Yeah. Well, it is a wristwatch, but it's um, it's a heart rate monitor and a step counter that also tells time. Exactly. <laughs> They've gotten much smarter these days. Yes. Kind of like my so-called smartphone is a, you know, portable internet device that if need be, I could make phone calls on, but I rarely do. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, I mean, we could talk about the, the smartphone and how it connects us with all manner of other minds and, and things, but I, I want to have you defend the idea that the mind really does extend out past, say, our skin. I'm 
fairly sympathetic to the claim that the word mind is best used as a verb. And if you use it as a noun, you're getting into needlessly un, you know, complicated waters. Um, That's a good we could say that, you know, yeah, the, the environment provides, it, it forms part of our mind, you know, it functions as part of our mind. Or you could just say that input from the environment mm-hmm. causes our internal cognitive processes to behave in certain ways. But there's, there's really no need to extend this mind thing out to encompass the environment. What would you say to that? Yeah, so that's what a lot of internalists would argue. And, and it's, it's a sensible argument until you start to pick it apart by following the actual chain of cause and effect that leads to activity in cortex that was preceded by activity in the spinal cord that was preceded by activity in the peripheral nerves that was preceded by things like pressure and uh, on that's pushing you know if you touch your hand um, you're pushing skin which pushes some neurons and those neurons get bent a little bit and that's what makes them send a signal that eventually gets the spinal cord into the cortex if you uh, have light landing on your retina that light enters your eyeball and travels through a whole bunch of medium and then finally uh, excites some neurons that are your retinal receptors and then they send signals that eventually get the cortex that causal chain does have one very impressive link and that is where a non-neurochemical signal gets transformed into or transduced into a neurochemical an electrochemical signal that's where you know the the skin around your hand that's getting depressed and deformed that that matrix of compression on the skin squeezes some neurons and then they send some electrical signals if you want to make that your crisp definition of where something suddenly went mental instead of being non-mental it's a powerful one that can look impressive but there's a lot of counterexamples where it doesn't make it an easy distinction so first of all if you'd make that your crisp definition of where the mind is on one side and non-mind stuff is on the other side, then you want to say it's more than the brain. Your internalistic account has to include peripheral nerves and peripheral neurons on your skin and your toes as part of your mind. And some traditional cognitive scientists already would feel like that's going too far. They want to say it's mostly the brain and not the peripheral nervous system. But if you like that definition, then you have a little bit of trouble handling other animals that have different kinds of sensory transduction processes. For example, look at various uh, marine life that have electrosensitivity. That's an electrical field that impacts the surface of their skin, and those neurons there then send electrical signals to the brain or the, or the nerve center of that marine animal. And that's not much of a transduction of some non-electrical thing to it. It's going from electrical to electrochemical. It's a pretty simple transduction of this stuff. Also, neurochemists, neurochemistry and biochemistry has a good understanding of that impressive transduction process, even in humans. It's not magical. So it's not a place where we can say something mysterious happened. Um, It's a very physical process of, say, depression of the skin that deforms that neuron or light hitting uh, the chemicals inside a particular uh, light receptor in your retina. Um, And we know the chemistry of how that uh, molecule reshapes itself when a photon hits it. So it's not mysterious at all. It's not kind of a place that you'd want to say things that happen after this part, this link in the chain are mental and things that happened before are not mental because it's so mysterious. Um, It would be something you'd have to say is um, fundamental to the mind being electrochemical signals only. And then you're really limiting yourself because you're going to say that only biological creatures with nerve-like systems have minds. So we'll never have AI in that theoretical framework. AI will never be intelligent and the way we want it to be or, or conscious. There's a lot of animals that have no brains and just really simple nerve nets that are excellent foragers and can move around in their environment and clearly have what looks like intentions to find food and escape predators, even though they have extremely simple nerve nets. And there's even bacteria that have no nerves at all that will behave in a way that looks like some food foraging and and avoiding painful stimuli, uh, even though they're not using any neurotransduction from a physical stimulus to a electrochemical signal. So there's a lot of mind-like behavior that we want to hope for or even have observed that doesn't depend on a transduction of a non-electrical stimulus into an electrical signal.
Here, unfortunately, there is a blank spot in the recording that is several seconds long. It's in the place where I was asking the next question, and for the life of me, I can't remember what the question was or figure it out from Professor Spivey's answer. But clearly, the question that I asked had something to do with the topics of intention and desire. So here's Professor Spivey's answer. Yes, and I would, um, to handle it well, I think you do have to start looking into what emergence is. So even in the case of the example I talked about with Benjamin LeBay's experiment of lifting a finger whenever you feel like it, that's an intention that you're in charge of in this unusual experiment. You get to decide whenever you want to lift your finger. So that intention clearly, even in the case of just looking inside the brain, is something that is emerging among billions of neurons in that frontal cortex. And the emergence process is even not quite detectable from the more conscious or linguistic um, self-talking portions of the brain that find out a, a few hundred milliseconds later that you have developed an intention. And it's those language areas that think, yeah, I own this intention because I've decided to lift my finger. When you can track the fact that it emerged in nearby but different parts of the brain, at least a few hundred, probably several hundred milliseconds before that. So... Let's get out away from the body a bit. Um, the, the chapters where you're talking about you know, being connected with other life and possibly all life on Earth, what's, what's the import of that particular part of the chain? Yeah, so that's another case where emergence is going to be important because in the same way that billions of neurons in your frontal cortex are producing patterns of activation that, that very unpredictably will eventually form some coherent group of population of neurons activating together in a coherent fashion to make a plan to lift your finger. Similar emergence happens not among billions of neurons, but among billions of people or billions of uh, life forms throughout the planet that are going to form an aggregate, as you pointed out, to form a kind of superorganism that has the equivalent of intentions. And those intentions may indeed be quite different from what any individual in that group has as its intentions. Those emergent intentions show up in the statistical patterns of starlings doing a murmuration. So when starlings have those swirling groups of, of uh, you know, several hundred uh, starlings flying together like this cloud that shapes itself and swirls around and um, they're amazing and hypnotic to watch. And if you analyze the data carefully and maybe build some computer simulations of it, you'll find that there is no one starling that's sort of the foreman of that or the director and guiding everyone. Everyone's following him or her. In fact, the their intentions of swirling leftward and then swirling rightward, that intention emerges from that group. And you can statistically find signatures, quantitative signatures of that emergence process that this is due to essentially information passing from one organism to the next, to the next, to the next, at a pace where essentially they are one organism, one starling on one end of that group is behaving as though he or she is aware of the sensory inputs of the whole group. And so the, when they do their swirls and turns and twists, it's as though the sensory, sensory organs of each of these individuals are linked into one organism that has a, an impressive sensory apparatus. Well, still going back to the, uh, the point of view I presented earlier, it, it seems like you could say, you know, the flock is equivalent to the mind in that instance, in that there, we see what look like patterns emerging, you know, from this group of birds, and we, we describe it as flocking behavior, or what was, what was the word you used? Uh, a murmuration. A murmuration. Yeah, yes, a murmuration. like that one. Yeah. But the flock really is just a linguistic convenience. You can describe what's happening there. If you have the patience and if you have the cognitive horsepower to do it, you can describe what's happening there without any reference to a flock or without any reference to patterns that you see, you know, on display that involve multiple birds. You can just describe the activity of each individual bird. And if you had the cognitive capacity, that would be sufficient to describe what's going on there. And this whole notion of a mind or a flock, or if, say, it's an audience, you know, at a baseball game doing the wave. You know, the audience is, is a cognitive is shortcut, but it's not a real thing in the world. You know, it's just a convenience for us. What would be your response to that? You can make that same argument about the language cortices getting uh, some observation, some signals from the other parts of frontal cortex that are forming a decision to lift a finger. And 
those language courtesies say, hey, I think there's a, a mental process happening here. There's a mind that we're part of that's making a decision to do something. And it's just as potentially flawed for yourself to think that I've reached the decision to do this because it's emergence. And you're making an observation of that emergent process and imputing a kind of intentionality in it that is a very unitary intentionality. Whereas I think you don't have to give up on intentions when you talk about an emergent account of systems. You don't have to say that that flock of birds doesn't really have intentions and that my brain doesn't really have intentions. What you can do is maintain this notion of intention. It's just that it's something that emerges in a group of many elements interacting, whether they're neurons or birds or people in a society. That emergent version of intention is a way to recognize the broad in space and long in time causal forces, a matrix of causal forces that have led up to this very moment where you're making a decision to do something or where the flock of birds is doing one coherent turn. It's intention-like, but it's not an individual mind making an intention. It's a, a matrix over space and time that you could trace the causal chain if you have really good measurements. If, you're, if you are Maxwell's demon and can know where every molecule is, then you can actually see that there's not an individual mind in that flock. There is a mind-like process in that flock and its environment in the trees surrounding it, which could be obstacles that it needs to not run into. That whole matrix of organismic and non-organismic, I guess trees are organisms too, but the telephone poles and stuff, that living and non-living environment is producing a mind-like process right there that is the flock of birds making a turn one direction or another in the same way that your decision to lift your finger or your decision to pursue this career or that career as a decision that you feel like it's you and only you who made that decision. But of course, it's a matrix of many inputs, genetic and educational and parental, all those over long times have led to a point where you're doing something that you think you're doing, but it's the whole universe that's doing that in a place you call here and now, if I can quote Alan Watts. Well, another rejoinder might be, there are things which are uncontroversially physical objects like this pen. You know, I bought this pen at a store. I picked it up. It had a price. The price was for this pen. Yep. But the pen is actually constructed of many different parts. And we could say that calling it a pen is just a mental convenience when it's really just sort of a collection of parts. And each individual part is composed of atoms and, you know, the, the cartridge inside or the ink you know, any, any quantity of ink, uh, calling it ink is really just the lazy man's way of referring to each of the, the ink atoms. Not that there is such a thing as ink atoms, but you know, yep. um, but really anything that is um, like a, a macro object in the world, really just calling it by some name is a shortcut. Yes. You know, it prevents us from having to talk about things in unmanageable detail. So yeah, I'm not saying that it would, would be scientifically inappropriate to ever refer to a cloud as a cloud, even though we know it's not a, a rigid object that moves on its own and it has very blurry edges on it, or that a, a pen is a pen, even though we know that it's got, you know, quantum fields that extend slightly beyond what we think is the outer surface of it. The same way our mental state, our minds, um, I think, extend beyond our skin. It doesn't make it inappropriate to refer to an organism as an individual unit in the way you talk about it linguistically, but in the way you treat it quantitatively, scientifically, it's useful to recognize that there are spreadings out beyond that apparent skin of the body or that apparent skin of the pen, the outer surface of that pen. One of the cool findings that I talk about in chapter four of the book, no, chapter five, where from your body to your environment is a, a neuroscience study where they trained a monkey to use a two-foot rake to reach out and grab a grape that's far away and pull it toward itself. And before that training, they're recording from a, a part of the brain that has polysensory neurons, meaning it picks up multiple sensory inputs for touch on, your, on its hand and for visual input near its hand. So the receptive field on its hand is, is if you touch any certain part of its hand, then that neuron gets excited. If you show a light stimulus, like a laser pointer light near that hand, that same neuron gets very excited. So these polysensory neurons are responding essentially to something that is graspable, either touching or nearby the hand, visually or tactile inputs. And then when that, once that monkey is reaching out to grab a grape, once the grape is near the hand or touching the hand, that neuron gets excited. If the grape is two feet away, 
that neuron's not excited because that's not a graspable object yet. It's not near enough the hand, it's not touching the hand. But then you train that monkey with not a pen, but an another non-biological object, a little wooden rake it has that's two feet long, and it can reach out and grab that grape and drag it closer to itself. Now, all of a sudden, the receptive field for that neuron extends to the rake. And so when things are near the far end of the rake, that cell gets excited, even though it's not near the hand. Essentially, this brain has included this non-biological object as part of its body schema. And so the brain, anyway, is accommodating um, these things like pens in your hands or, or tool, other tools in your hands as part of your body for the kinds of actions that you might carry out. Human beings do that uh, when driving cars. You know, we, we think of the car. It, we don't just think of it, but yeah. we perceive it as being, you know, not just associated with our body, but we, we, you know, think about moving our body through space when we're actually driving a car. Yep. It's an extension of your body. Yeah. Um, once you become a good driver. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you, um, you know, test driving a new car, particularly if you drive a stick, you know, every, uh -huh. every manual transmission vehicle is a little bit different in terms of finding the gears and whatnot and mm -hmm. how much pressure you have to put on the, uh, on the clutch pedal to actually disengage. And, uh, so even like, you know, I've, I've drove a stick for 15 years and then I traded it for another vehicle and I was kind of clumsy with the new vehicle at first, you know, and somebody who didn't know me who might be riding with me that day might think that I was just learning to drive a stick. But in fact, I've been doing it for a very long time. And, but, and it doesn't feel like an extension of your body at that point yet. Um, before. Right. It feels like I'm, I'm working something, yeah. you know, I'm yep. manipulating something. And this is similar to what an infant uh, and a newborn is doing when they wiggle their limbs around without, without good control. They're trying to uh, develop some skills with this device that they have the set of devices on the end of this arm and end of that arm and try to figure out how to move just their own hand in a way that is goal-oriented and successful. It takes a little while for that uh, newborn. It takes months really for it to get skilled at that and essentially feel like these hands are an extension of their body finally. Well, let's, let's talk about practical implications for everything that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, in the 90s, you know, in my 20s, and I'm reading about virtual reality, and I thought, wow, that sounds really cool. I really want to do that. And now virtual reality exists. If I wanted to, I could go buy an Oculus headset and, you know, do things in VR, and I have zero interest in that. <laughs> None at all. And, you know, there's a very famous picture of Mark Zuckerberg walking through a room, and everybody else in the room is seated. He's the only one standing, and everybody else is wearing VR headsets. And he just looks like the one person who can see in that room, and he is controlling the perceptions of everybody else. And I just don't want to be yeah. in that crowd. But at the same time, augmented reality, where I can see the world, world around me, but there's an overlay, which is giving me additional information, like people's names, you know, if I'm at a party or if I'm talking to somebody whose name I really should know and I don't want to admit that I don't, it would be very nice if there was just a little label down there below their name. Or, you know, I don't want to have to look away from the actual world outside the windshield to a screen to see, you know, which turn to take. I would rather have that information overlaid. But to do, for that to be effective, the device that I'm wearing has to know what I'm looking at, which means it has to have a little sensor or a camera or something trained on my eye and knowing exactly where I'm looking and when, if there's some sort of feedback mechanism where it can affect me at a particular time when it knows that I'm looking at a particular thing, I've just given away enormous control over my whole decision-making apparatus. So you're touching on a field of research that I've been involved in for a long time. Uh, my laboratory tracks people's eye movements for a lot of these experiments that I've done. And it was just in 2015 that my colleagues and I published a paper that does shows exactly what you're just worried about. Uh, so Philip Parnamets was the first author on this. And in the Parnamets experiment, we had people look at moral quandaries that are presented over headphones. And it might be something like, uh, is it ever justifiable? Is murder ever justifiable? Might be a, a tricky quandary that, and you're just supposed to say yes or no to it. So you hear, is murder ever justifiable? And you have on the computer screen, a yes option, and a no option. And we're tracking your eye movements while you look at yes and go, well, gosh, you know, there might be certain people that the world would have been better if they'd been murdered. And then you look at no and go, but no, murder really is a definition for an illegal version of that kind of stuff. And you go, well, still, there's, the, and you go back and forth to yes and no for a moral quandary like that. 
and there's a handful of moral quandaries that are sort of near 50 50 for at least a lot of people and in these different trial to trial to trial what, the, what we're doing is tracking where your eyes are going and once you've at least looked at both options yes and no uh, a couple times for some amount of time then the computer has randomly chosen yes or no as its preferred choice for you and once you've looked at both a little bit and you're looking at one of them its preferred one at that time then the screen goes blank and says respond now and so you're sort of suddenly prompted you got to hurry up and now make a decision and what the computer's done is track your wavering decision process to where you're now at a point that you might be leaning toward its preferred response and so it prompts you to respond now. And sure enough, instead of it being 50-50, there was about a 55% choice. 55% of the time people chose the option that the computer had tricked them into preferring. So it's a small bump, but 55 to 45 is a 10% point difference in, a, in an election that's pretty big, actually. The one story of this is that, holy moly, people are going to be manipulating my decisions once they start tracking my eye movements. And that is a concern, especially with augmented reality displays that you might have in a pair of glasses that help you see people and, and uh, remember their names and stuff like that. But in order to do it right, you would probably have to be tracking your eye movements. And then, of course, you open yourself up to these kinds of potential decision-making manipulations for purchasing decisions or voting or anything like that. But another lesson for for me, anyway, is that there's concrete evidence that something that you really hold near and dear, your moral compass of what I think about uh, whether murder is ever justifiable or what I think about selfishness versus altruism, a lot of these things where you have some moral quandaries that involve a balance, that moral compass you have that you think exists in your head with some commandments in there that are written in stone, that thing is fungible and flexible depending on the environment. Your environment, just subtle, even accidental timings can make you choose something that you thought your moral compass told you not to choose. And this happens all the time. You know, it could be you've decided to, to not eat veal anymore. And then you go to your favorite restaurant, uh, Italian restaurant, you open up the menu and there's that veal, that veal parmigiana you used to love. And you look at it and then your eyes go back to the chicken parmigiana. I'm not going to eat veal anymore because that's cruel. I'm going to have chicken this time. And your eyes wander back to that veal. And just as your eyes wander back to the veal, the damn waiter walks up and says, what will you have? And you find you, you hear yourself saying, I'll have the veal, please. And oh, that was my moral compass decision. I was going to change my, my actions, my behaviors. And I just slipped into it. If that waiter had walked up one second earlier or one second later, you might have happily chosen the chicken that you wanted. These kinds of environmental flukes play a role in what you think is a moral compass that's not at all written in stone in your head. Um, and so the lesson there anyway is to put yourself in environments where you're going to make good decisions. Try to um, you're still going to have the accidental one second here, one second there uh, flukes, but you're not going to have the environment pushing you hard to make decisions that go against your what you think is your moral compass. And so put yourself in good environments uh, when you wear your augmented reality glasses. Maybe don't turn on the eye tracking function. You know, you can have just the center of it work. And so and this would work. You have, you'd have to point your head at each person in a somewhat robotic fashion. But then the center of that camera is uh, going to tell you the person's name and, and other things about your environment to, to aid your uh, cognition. So this is a bit off topic, but I've, I've long thought that um, AI and a few sensors embedded in a dog collar, uh, particularly if somehow it could see where the dog was looking, uh, could really diminish a lot of the tensions between humans and dogs that comes from our failure to communicate in certain instances. And even in some instances, like, you know, if a dog is separated from its owner, the AI would know and could call it an Uber, you know, and, and mm -hmm. take the dog home. Or basically, I remember I was at a party in Seattle once, and some folks came to the party and they had a dog with them. And I said, oh, whose dog with this? And uh, I, I learned that this was a dog that was, it belonged to somebody, but that somebody wasn't present that this dog just sort of floats around in this, you know, peer group. There's, wow. a, there's a bunch of friends, and sometimes the dog goes with one person, sometimes it goes with another. So it's just at this party, at, you know, in this warehouse just south of Seattle, and uh, it knows somebody here, and, you know, it's going to keep an eye and make sure it, it's in the car when they leave, but it's, it's really flexible about where it goes. And I, the only dog I've ever encountered that was that, yeah. you know, sort of independent. What a floozy. Um, yeah, well, it was also very impressive. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was thinking, you know, a lot more dogs could be like that. And maybe that would be kind of neat. <laughs> I like that. That, that. that would be very cool. It, it's a, uh, a nice example of 
sort of the tail end of the distribution of behaviors that are actually still perfectly adaptive in the right environments. And we think of dogs as being loyal to one master, um, but uh, just like people, they can have a wide range of personalities. Something else I thought of when you were describing, you know, the, the potential abuses of continuous eye tracking. <laughs> Computer generated imagery has gotten really, really good in recent years to the point where, you know, sometimes people are saying we're, we're pretty much we've beaten the uncanny valley. That that's a thing of the past, unless you're just, you know, unless the work is really rushed or amateurish. But if it's state of the art and the proper amount of money was spent on it, we can have photorealistic human beings that look like human beings and you just, you don't see it. But if you go back and you look at something from like, say the Star Wars prequels, you know, which were very CGI heavy, that stuff hasn't aged as well as you think, you know, as it, if you haven't gone back and looked at it recently, mm -hmm. it doesn't look as good as it does in your memory. Yep. Like you update your memory of it to the current standards, but that stuff like, you know, until like the mid 20 teens, the ray tracing that goes on, you know, to basically describe or to, to render an image that's based on 3D models, it was just interacting with the surface of this thing. But human skin, you know, it is reflecting light from below the surface. So this is something called subsurface scattering, which just wasn't part of CGI up to a certain point. And so there's been a sort of, even in people who are not involved in the creation of special effects, people who just watch movies and who pay attention you know, things which used to look convincing to them no longer do. And I wonder, I don't wonder, I'm pretty sure there is going to be a sort of an arms race between our ability to detect manipulation and that manipulation getting more and more subtle. And some people will fall behind and they'll just be oblivious to it. And other people will be, will be detecting it from time to time. And if they're smart, they'll wonder how much of it they're detecting. And if they're overconfident, they'll think because they detect some of it, they're detecting all of it which they probably aren't. But I, I wonder if, you know, the research that you have done has any, any lessons or uh, any advice, you know, for somebody with these concerns. Well, so especially I think what you're hinting at is deep fakes, right? Where they might be able to produce some artificial version of uh, someone saying something that they never said, and they can make it look very realistic and it's going to fool a lot of people. What it's probably not going to fool is good image processing systems that can point a camera at it that are designed to detect those fakes, right? And so the, the same intelligence, the same computing intelligence that goes into making those fakes look realistic can be applied to detecting fakery. And so the humans will get fooled a lot, but we'll be able to have devices, I suspect, that will detect signatures, statistical pattern signatures that will say, yes, that's a deep fake and, and the computer tells us so. That I think we're going to see and we're going to be able to rely on but, you know, there will still be people who don't believe the results of that. <laughs> well, particularly when there's a, a legal decision hinging on whether or not this video evidence is reliable. And, you know, the prosecution hires one expert witness to come in to say, no, this is real video. Uh, and, the you know, the defense hires somebody else to come in and it's somebody with equally, you know, impressive sounding credentials who will say, oh, no, no, this clearly has the, the hallmarks of uh, fakery. And then it's up to a jury to decide whose face they like better, you know, yeah. or who had the more reassuring body language on the stand or, you know, it, it's going to come down to, yeah, it's going to come down to faith, you know, in, in a lot of, a lot of instances. I'm hoping that computational advancements will be able to give more than just a, an expert opinion in a courtroom that we can say that uh, here's, here's, you know, they're not going to understand the math of the details, but we'll be able to say, based on this quantitative analysis, here's the features that our algorithm picked up on that says, yes, this was manipulated. Well, there are um, machine learning models called GANs, or uh, I think it's generative uh, antagonistic networks mm -hmm. or something along those lines, where you've basically got two different modules. One is creating a fake and the other is trying to detect the fake. And the two just going back and forth competing with each other cause the, the image to become more and more convincing over time. But constantly one one module in the GAN is defeating the other one. Yep. And so if it comes down to a decision, you know, between we have to render a legal decision as to which of these two modules is right in any given instance, you know, the fact that they're going back and forth and, and you know, one surpassing the other and then vice yep. versa doesn't give me a whole lot of confidence that we're going to be able to, you know, navigate these waters very safely. That's a scary future. <laughs> I, I, Hmm, I don't know uh, how we will get out of that. You may be right that we're going to be in a case where 
it'll be faith and biases and prejudices that decide things like that. So unlike, you know, human history up to this exactly. Point. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's move out even further from all other life to, you know, the the whole planet. How how does this process, you know, play out from here, expanding our sense of self to the planet? Yeah, as you expand your sense of self beyond your brain and beyond your body, so it's not just neuroscience that you care about, it's not just embodied cognition that you care about, um, even to tools and other people in your environment that are performing some of your cognition for you. It's not just extended cognition we're talking about, it goes even farther because at each one of these places, part of why the next chapter tries to tell you to expand that sense is because the attempt to put a boundary between inside and outside of a mind looks too blurry to be confident in. So let's not put it there. Let's let's expand it further. Let's expand it further. Each time it looks like that boundary is blurry enough that you maybe you don't want to assume it's really, truly, genuinely there. It's still useful at times to pretend it's there for the way you want to talk about stuff. So, you know, we don't want to say you can never talk about a human or a, or a brain there, there's still organisms and, and pieces of organisms that are worth talking about. But as you expand out further, because these lines are getting blurry, you recognize that a lot of what is making this matrix over space and time that has generated causal influences to produce any action you produce or any action a nation produces or any action an individual neuron produces, all has a rich matrix of causal chain and effect responsible for it. And so if you expand your sense of self out to include all of that, then you, you're you going to treat your whole nation and other nations, the whole, all of humanity, all of life as part of who you are. You're going to want to protect all of life in the same way that you every day protect yourself. You want to have not just you be adaptive in your environment, you want all of life to be adaptive in, in your environment. And going farther, we recognize from ecology and from archaeology that non-life matter plays a big role in the formation and maintenance of living matter. And so it's not just that all life is this superorganism existing on the surface of a rock called earth. It's actually all living matter plus the rock of earth. This entire planet with all its living and non-living forces behaves as one aggregate. And that's the Gaia hypothesis that ecologists pushed forward in the 1980s and 90s. And, and it's, it sounds a little hippy-dippy, but it's not wrong. You know, you, you, you can functionally draw some distinctions now and again when it's useful between living matter and non-living matter. But the interrelationship between them is unmistakable in the formation of life on Earth, in the changes of life, and the changes of the Earth itself. There are a lot of structures about the non-living components of Earth that wouldn't be the way they are if life had not formed on this planet. And of course, uh, life would not have formed if certain other non-living structures weren't the way they were to, to provide resources for the life to form. And so we're not on the Earth, we are of the Earth. And when you start thinking that way, it's not just other life forms that you want to protect in the same way that you protect yourself to be adaptive in your environment. We need to protect this whole planet. A lot of non-living components of this planet need as much protection as the living components do. And it encourages a, a recognition of climate change and an, a, an effort toward climate action to help preserve this planet. Not because we need to save the planet. Uh, we need to save this planet to be a, a place that still supports life and especially human life because we are a little selfish there. There's a great George Carlin bit about that. Yes, the, the George Carlin bit is great, and, and uh, ecologists have said the same thing. We're not saving the planet, we're saving ourselves. Let's be honest, if we all die out, the planet will be just fine. Yeah, and you know, there are catastrophic sort of uh, apocalyptic scenarios that don't even cause the extinction of humanity that we certainly want to avoid, because really what we're concerned with is our comfort and the thought of our descendants um, doing well and enjoying you know, an even better life than we've had. And I'm, you know, I, I can phrase that as self-centeredness or shallowness or something, but I, I also agree that, you know, species matter and species are things that are not constrained to the individuals that are alive right now. It's, it's a very long process, an evolutionary process, which has given rise to these species. 
and that the species, the process itself has, you know, it needs to be respected. Yeah. And I, this, for me, the same is true of human civilization. And I'm in contact with a lot of people who are very down on technological civilization. And uh, I just, you know, I recognize its costs. I recognize its shortcomings and how we could be doing better, but I'm certainly not willing to voluntarily relinquish, you know, electricity. I feel the same way. I totally agree with you. I think some of the extreme save the planet attitudes are about let's all go back to being hunters and gatherers so that we stop polluting the earth. And these are, you know, people who love camping. <laughs> not everybody loves camping <laughs> for your entire and, life. And, you know, they're, they're probably taking a nylon tent with them, you know, and they probably have some water purification <laughs> tablets just in case, you yep, know, yep. and uh, not many people are going out there with a loincloth and a knife. And, <laughs> you know, I, I do know a guy who that was his thing. He would go out into the Amazon jungle in a loincloth with just a knife, but still it was a steel knife. You know, it wasn't flint. <laughs> and that, I'm glad he has fun with that, but he can't reasonably expect all of humanity to also go along with that plan. The planet's not going to support 8 billion of us in that fashion. No. <laughs> yeah. How about um, getting out beyond the solar system, because there are such immense gulfs of space between us and the nearest star and the nearest anything of interest, really, that uh, when we look out into space, we're seeing, you know, back in time, we're seeing millions and billions of years back in time. So effectively, it is impossible for us to have a conversation with somebody who's even at the nearest star, you know, there's, what is it, like four light years away, you'd have to wait eight years for one hello, good morning exactly. exchange. At that point, haven't we really reached a very, very meaningful limit between us and not us? Yes, we are. I, I'm not an astronomer, but I do spend some time in, on chapter eight in this book talking about exactly that issue that you point out, which is our light cone is not going to intersect with any other light cone of other life forms. So when people suggest that there's almost certainly other forms of life out there in the universe. Statistically speaking, that's probably true, but we're, uh, we're never going to interact with them. Probably <laughs> we're never going to find any evidence. And there's, you know, some have pointed out that if there really were any close to our light cone, we should have been able to see residual evidence of them. If, you know, there were life forms that really lasted long enough to build interplanetary technology, the way our sci-fi stories like to imagine, then by now, we probably should have seen some lingering evidence of some, you know, constructed planet that would have properties that differ from other planets. We're not, we don't see anything like that so far. We, um, I, the fact that we haven't seen any, any evidence of other life forms, even just passing through time and disappearing, but leaving behind technology, leaving behind signals that, that would have been evidence of that technology. We don't have any evidence of that. It's kind of worrisome. So it's not just that um, they're not inside our light cone, but their residue has not shown its way into our light cone, which might mean that as likely as it is that there's other life, it's so remote that we may as well pretend it's not there. And that means, at least in our corner of the universe, this little planet is amazingly special. And that's all the more reason that we want to protect it and not have it become just like the other planets that don't have life on it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, having been an online, you know, somebody's putting content on the internet for 16 years now. I mean, even longer than that, but that's when I started podcasting was 2006. Come into a contact with a lot of people with a lot of um, what I consider to be maladaptive ideas. And, and one of the worst is antinatalism. It's the belief that reproduction is wrong. You know, it's morally wrong. And antinatalists are just the worst in terms of being really nasty in online discussions. And, <laughs> you know, for their their perspective, the fact that there is life on Earth, which allows for suffering, is is horrible, and it would be much better if there were no life here. And it's like, wow, you know, if you look at this vast, vast universe that we live in, most of all of it, you know, that we can see is devoid of life. And the problem you have is that here on this little this little <laughs> speck, there is this very thin layer of living stuff, you know, around the lithosphere. It's, uh -huh. That's the thing you'd change. <laughs> that's depressing as heck that that's their mindset. I, yes, there's suffering for sure, but um, there's also happiness. There's also joy. There's also uh, excitement. And I think this tiny little pocket where the universe is doing something on earth is a chance for matter of the universe to actually 
start to conceive of itself and think about itself in a way that other non-living planets aren't doing. It's pretty exciting to think that this is the universe slightly getting to know itself. And it's the only place that's happening, at least for a very wide swath of this universe. It might be the only place for all we know. Well, the antinatalist perspective is really wedded to the idea that the you know, the barrier of the skin is really significant, that that's where the individual resides, that where the mind is contained. And, you know, the, you have a choice. You can give rise to the creation of another individual like yourself or not. And to do so is wrong because it creates this another, this new nexus of suffering. But really, you know, if, if you're not so committed to the, the importance of the barrier of the skin, mm -hmm. you know, and, and defining an individual as being here, you know, the mind is being here and the, the locus of suffering being within this, yeah. you know, this container, then that argument doesn't really hold. I think that's excellent. In fact, whenever I do really embrace uh, what I try to teach in this book, and, you know, sometimes it fades and I get into an individualistic uh, mindset of trying to figure out finances or job deadlines or whatever. And so I don't wind up being one with the universe during those moments. But when I can be one with the universe, I don't feel suffering. And I think that's, you know, we've got lots of traditions of uh, Buddhistic and Zen uh, meditation practices that show you that's exactly what you get when you let go of pretending that this skin boundary is so special and protective. And, and in fact, you're just part of the universe and whatever suffering might be happening at some moment inside this skin bag can be spread out and you can wind up recognizing other people are happy right now. Maybe I can appreciate their joy, even though I might have some sadness now, that the universe is doing what it's going to do no matter what, that you are part of that process, that everything that's happening is exactly what was always going to happen. And so a lot of suffering comes from this notion of, if I had done this other thing, then what, I would have gotten a different result. If my choice had been something different yesterday, then I'd be at a different place right now those counterfactuals are actually a big part of what causes suffering and they are completely illogical if you embrace a notion of the universe as a pretty darn deterministic emergent process that things are interacting with one another doing what they're going to do everything that's happening right now is exactly what was always going to happen so to pretend that you had free will and could have made a different choice yesterday is an unhelpful pretense yeah, the choice you made was highly uh, influenced, if not determined, by factors that you weren't even aware of. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a really good summation and end point, but uh, let me offer it up to you to take us out on whatever closing point you want to make. I guess uh, my closing point would be that um, with this book, Who You Are, uh, one of the things that my wife, Cynthia, encouraged me to add is every chapter not only has a bunch of scientific findings that sort of help encourage you to expand that boundary broader and wider uh, of what's inside your mind and what's outside, but it also ends with a couple pages of directions for use. And in these directions for use, they actually give you some concrete little tasks and games to carry out that help you sort of, now that you've maybe considered expanding your mind to this slightly larger Venn diagram, try it out in the real world. Try out this larger mind you have by uh, doing little exercises and little games. Like even whether it's uh, rescuing an insect from your house that you might normally squish or donating money or donating time to things, uh, all kinds of little exercises to try out this new larger mind you have. And it gives a practical aspect to this book that's not just gonna make you think differently, it's gonna make you do differently. All right, well, Professor Michael J. Spivey, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. This was fun. Thank you, KMO. That was Michael J. Spivey. And if you were to remember just one thing from this conversation, I think the thing that you would do well to remember is the piece of advice that Michael gave when he said, put yourself in environments where you're going to make good decisions. You may put a lot of stock in your moral fiber or your good upbringing or, or things of that nature, but you really are more than just what's in your skin. And the people whom you associate with and the situations that you are in habitually have enormous influences on the decisions that you make. So choose your surroundings well. Now, toward the end there, we talked a bit about the possibility of encountering ourselves out in the universe. And I was saying that, yeah, you can convince me that the skin 
is not necessarily where the individual or where where I end, that there are parts of my consciousness which basically come into being when I interact with things outside what is, you know, contained within my skin. So in a sense, parts of my mind are emergent and they're emergent outside of my body. But the vast, vast distances between stars and the limitation that the speed of light puts even on communicating with beings, you know, living on planets around other stars, it just seems really unlikely. As much as I hate to admit it, it seems really, really unlikely that we will ever have any sort of satisfying, fascinating, or even terrifying encounters or interactions even, even long distance interactions with extraterrestrial civilizations. In all likelihood, they arise, they flourish for a time, and then they go away, either catastrophically or, you know, in a less dramatic fashion, but they don't stick around forever. And because of the vast distances between stars and between galaxies and between galactic superclusters, uh, there's just so much space. There might be millions of civilizations operative right now in the universe, but we're just too far apart from one another. And in all likelihood, in our galaxy, I'd be willing to bet we're the only one operative right now. There might be hundreds of thousands that arise, thrive for a time, and then fade away over the course of, you know, the existence of our galaxy. But I suspect we're separated in time as well as in space, and we're just not going to interact with them. Do you think I'm wrong about that? Do you think... Professor Spivey is wrong about that. If so, uh, please let us know. You can either send me email, kmo at padverb.com, or we have a Telegram group. To get there, go to en.padverb.com, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, into the, the dark section at the bottom of the page, and then on the far right in small print, you'll see a link that says, Our Podcast. Click on that. It'll take you to a page that describes this podcast and embedded in the descriptive text of the podcast in the final paragraph, you will see a link to our Telegram group. Hopefully in the future, it will be easier to get there. But for now, if you want to participate, those are the steps. Now on the question of free will, Michael seemed to be a pretty hardcore determinist. Whatever the universe is going to do, it was always going to do. And you're playing out these fantasies in your head of, if I had only done this, if I had only known, if I had only made this effort, this small effort in the past would have generated this enormous benefit to me in the present. Michael says there's absolutely no point in that. But if that's true for the reasons that he says it's true, well, then you don't really have the option to stop doing that if that's what you're doing. <laughs> it's not your choice. So when it comes to that level of determinism, it's kind of hard for me to sign on to that because it basically says that our choices don't matter, and I think they do. At least, I intend to continue acting as if they do. Or believing. <laughs> but, you know, maybe it's, it's just determined and was determined at the outset of the universe that I would say that at the end of this podcast. And speaking of the end of this podcast, we've reached it. Thanks, as always, to the Padverb team, executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Elena Voigt and Slava Borisov, assistant producer Sonia Saw, we had audio help from Vasily Morin, and from this episode on, I'll be doing the editing. The music was created by Slava Borisov. All right, that is all. Join me one week from today for another conversation, and I will talk to you then. Music